Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget, we've got a fundraising campaign on. One of our members has generously contributed a $10,000 matching grant. So if you donate now, get matched. If you do a monthly, we're going to times 12 and match that. Uh, so hang on, we'll be right back. Heads have rolled at the Department of Defense as President Trump fired Secretary Mark Esper and installed his loyal sycophants. Okay, perhaps loyal sycophant is redundant. Now joining us to discuss the significance of these appointments and Trump's reported plans to withdraw most U.S. troops from Afghanistan and Iraq, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Elliot Abrams' trip to the Middle East at a time when it's been reported Trump is asking about bombing Iran is Larry Wilkerson. Larry is a retired United States Army Colonel, former Chief of Staff, United States Secretary of State Colin Powell. He's a distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary and a member of the National Election Task Force for Election Crises. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Good to be on in such tumultuous times. So connect the dots here. First of all, I guess of all the things I just listed, Trump asking about bombing Iran is the most dangerous. Uh, now there's been some talk he was quote unquote walked back from that. And uh, then there was talk he may have been only walked back from that temporarily. Uh, how serious is this threat against Iran? Is it connected to the issue of the, uh, the changes at the Defense Department? So let's start there. I'll give you the rumors first. And the rumors come from my contacts in the Pentagon and around the building. The rumors are that Pompeo was behind it. I know he's been trying to tell people that he wasn't behind it, that he was again it, as it were. Um, and as you might imagine, Pompeo's people like Elliot Abrams. And I've, I've been told also that Doug McGregor, who went in as a, an advisor to this young man, Chris, who's uh, the new acting secretary of defense, and I know Doug pretty well, was uh, dead set against it. And that's Doug. I, I imagine he would have been. Um, so I think uh, the uniform military and Doug's advice prevailed. That's that's my rumor uh, story anyway. And so um, there wasn't very much support for it. Now, my analysis of what's going on there, though, tells me that he's probably trying to set up the Pentagon so he can deal with it, if he wants to deal with it, in a way that is unopposed to him. If that's the case though, why did he put Doug there? Because Doug is dead set against these endless stupid wars and he's dead set against any kind of conflict in the Middle East or North Africa. Um, it'd have to be anywhere in the world, it'd have to be really seriously in our vital interest before Doug would be for it. So Doug must be there, I think, to fulfill Trump's real wishes, which are no war but he wants to get the troops out. I think he really wants to get the troops out, particularly Afghanistan. And I wish he'd say something about Syria and environs too, because they're just over there doing what I, I, I can't tell you what they're doing other than vegetating. Um, and they're in a dangerous spot because the Russians are around too. So that's what I hope he does. I mean, I'm always hoping that something good will come out of this administration by accident maybe. Uh, but I, I think maybe that's what he's thinking about. And if he's thinking about that and he wants this group to do that for him, I'm all for it. 
So the pullout from Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, he seems serious about. And, well, and, see, and they've been so defying him. The, the, the mil uniform military and Esper, I, I, I'm pretty sure these contacts are reliable, have been defying him. Not in his face, but they've been saying, oh, if we pull out now, there'll be all kinds of problems, you know, blah, 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 blah. We can't pull out. We need to stay a little bit longer. And then it's a little bit longer. It's just like the previous commanders who said, give me 10,000 more troops. Give me, you know, 100,000 more troops in Obama's surge and I'll fix the problem. Boy, they can't fix the problem. They're never going to be able to fix the problem. So let's get out and quit endangering our boys and girls in Afghanistan. And why does the Pentagon want to stay? Or sections well, of the I, Pentagon, anyway? There, there is some reality to withdrawal, especially a withdrawal under fire, is one of the most difficult military maneuvers to pull off. Ask Tony Zinni, who pulled out of Somalia. <laughs> it's, it's tough. So the military's balking because they, they don't want to pull out in a way that would endanger them. I understand that. But you can get onto it. You can you you can put it in process, and that's what they they don't even seem to want to do that. And there are some people who are running around saying, "Oh, it doesn't matter what the deal is, Al Qaeda will come back." Well, we just saw this morning, if it, the Israeli report is right, that they killed Al Masri, the second leader of Al Qaeda, and possibly Zawahiri is dead of natural causes, the number one leader of Al Qaeda. So though they're still spread out across various regions, Yemen in particular, and still dangerous, you don't seem to have any what I would call global or you know, affecting America leadership. So I don't see how they're going to squeeze their way back into Afghanistan except by force, as they've done in other places. And you know, the Afghan National Army and the Afghan security people ought to be able to take care of that. And I, as I've said many times in the past, we come back and bash Al-Qaeda again if they look like they're doing anything. That's not uh, hard to do. What would that be, a raid? It wouldn't be as many things as Ronald Reagan sent to Libya in 1986 to bomb Gaddafi. You take care of Al-Qaeda. We should have done that in the first place. We should have gone in, smashed the Taliban, smashed Al-Qaeda, and left, and left the government with the clear message, let Al-Qaeda back in, we'll come smash you and them again. Lingering there was idiocy. The uh, incoming Biden administration, what do you make of who's being talked about now, uh, Sex State and uh, at the Department of Defense and, and, they, and some of the transition team? Because it seems to be the, a, a lot of the Obama-esque foreign policy team. I looked at a list today that had two or three individuals for pretty reliable uh, reporting, I think, two or three individuals that were being considered for each of the preeminent positions, um, SecDef, SecState, um, agency heads, Secretary of the Treasury, and so forth. Um, it, it didn't look that bad to me, but it did have what you said, a patina of what really disturbs me, the Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright, warlike, let me bash that dictator with your military, please. And it had some people who I think are not going to be receptive to what I think is essential for the Democratic Party, the progressive voice within it. They may give lip service to it, but they will not be very sympathetic or empathetic with it. And uh, I don't see that helping Biden. He's got to have some people who are like Elizabeth Warren, for example, or Bernie Sanders, 
He's got to have some people who not only are for that agenda, but have articulated a very specific and smart plan to implement some of that agenda. I don't see that happening. I, maybe, maybe this was a bad list in that respect, but I hope it is happening. Uh, on the foreign policy side, it sure doesn't seem like it's happening. Uh, Samantha Powers is very much in play, who was, if I understand correctly, certainly one of the people that was gung-ho about going into Libya. And if I understand it correctly, Biden wasn't one of the ones who was no, gung-ho I, I, to go. I've into. heard the rumors about Samantha, and I can't, I can't see Samantha being a cabinet member. I, I could see her being something else, as she's been before. I think Obama sent her to the United Nations to get rid of her. He was sick and tired of her. What um, about Susan I, Rice? Rice is a different animal. Um, not in the sense that she makes some really lousy recommendations like Samantha does, but um, she's a different animal in terms of Biden's affection or closeness or trust to her or for her, I think. I don't know that personally, but that's what I've heard. So she might she might be in there somewhere. I just don't, I don't think Samantha's even being considered. I know they're throwing it around. You know what they do, Paul? What John Bolton did when I was first in the State Department in December of 2000, GSA had finally given us a key, and John Bolton was traveling all, traveling all over the world, Paris, Berlin, Brussels, Tokyo, and saying, I'm going to be Deputy Secretary of State, probably because Cheney had promised him that. And I went into Powell about three days into this boasting. And I said, are you shitting me? Is he going to be deputy secretary of state? And Powell said, over my dead body. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I think Powell worked it out with Cheney. He told Cheney, you give me Rich Armitage, and then I'll take Bolton to be undersecretary for international security affairs and arms control. But I will not take him to be deputy. And Paul can go over to be deputy of defense. I think he laid down a marker with Cheney, and that's why we had to eat Bolton. Uh, wasn't a good deal. I think Powell at the time probably thought it was a good deal, but it wasn't a good deal. We had Bolton in our midst all the time. I would just read an article in the magazine Foreign Affairs by Samantha Powers. Um, I don't know if this reflects Biden thinking or not, um, but I, I've been talking to some other friends and colleagues about what to expect from the Biden administration, and some are thinking... It, they'll really return to the anti-Russia rhetoric. Uh, but in the Samantha Powers piece, it was all about China, uh, taking leadership of the world yeah, she's whatever, playing to away the, from China. She's playing to the audience, you know, just like Bolton did. I mean, she may have more possibilities than Bolton did, but she's playing. That's what they all do. They run around, they write articles. Condi wrote articles, you know, they write articles. Look at me. I'm impressive, aren't I? I'd probably make a good secretary of state or I'd make a good secretary of defense or whatever. They all do that. I wasn't so much talking about powers and, and what she may or may not get appointed to, but, but the preoccupation of Biden with China. And of course it's not just Biden. There really is a serious geopolitical rivalry between the U S and China, but I, I don't know that and it's getting is, worse. Is, it's getting worse. Uh, I was reading a Chinese admiral today. Um, I think the translation was good. Unfortunately, I don't speak Mandarin or read Mandarin. Um, probably send it over to Ambassador Chaz Freeman and ask him to take a look at it. But I think it was a good translation. And uh, he's essentially saying very bombastically, we're going to sink two aircraft carriers, not one. Now, that's bombast, as I said, and it's the military speaking. It's not Xi Jinping or Wang Yi or any of the 
Politburo people. It's a military admiral. But I know that they are salivating at the prospect of sinking an aircraft carrier. And furthermore, I know they can. And I said, why two? Why not three? If they're close enough together. <laughs> you know, I mean, this, this is not good that this kind of rhetoric is being exchanged. It's kind of like the rhetoric that is exchanged almost daily between elements in Iran and elements in this country. Um, Iran is one thing. China is quite another. And so I think it's very dangerous to throw this rhetoric around. And it's especially dangerous when people are yakking and Pompeo's yakking about strategic clarity, even Richard Haas, with regard to Taiwan. Strategic clarity, my rear end. I always love strategic ambiguity more than strategic clarity, especially with great powers. Strategic clarity will get you in hot water rapidly. I look at you and you're my equivalent and I say, you hit me and I will kill you. And you look back at me and say, no, you won't. I'll kill you before you do me. That's not good between great powers. That's nasty stuff. That's the kind of stuff that led to World War I and World War II. And what you're talking about is uh, Richard Haas and others. Haas is at the... Uh... Foreign Affairs, Committee on Foreign Affairs, right. uh, saying- Foreign Relations, Committee on Foreign, foreign Relations. Relations. Yeah, I'm sorry. Council saying on that Foreign there's, Relations. Yeah. Yeah, he's I'm the sorry. president. And and he had this article where he says, get rid of the ambiguity on Taiwan. And the United States should come out clearly and say, if there's any Chinese military incursion into Taiwan, the United States will respond militarily. Right now, it's sort of ambiguous what the United States would do. And I assume most people presuppose the United States would do nothing. I mean, you know, the United States is not going to go into a ground war with China. It's nuts. Well, it wouldn't be a ground war. Uh, I think naval, naval, yeah, air, yeah, whatever. Naval and air. Yeah, all the yeah. war games show it's it's naval and air. Uh, what was it? The Princess Bride, you know, don't ever start a land war in Asia. <laughs> <laughs> you fool! You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well-known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great very one. wise advice. <laughs> yeah. You're you're a, what, uh, 400,000 man army against a million point two. <laughs> With, and the other problem is, look at the strategic depth of China. It almost rivals Russia's when Napoleon attacked or when Hitler attacked. That's why Putin is so anxious today, because what's defended Russia through Napoleon, through Hitler, and actually, if you want to go back all the way to the Huns and Prince Nevsky on the ice at Lake Pepys, way back in the 1200s, is her strategic depth. And what's happened, of course, with NATO's expansion is Russia has lost much of that strategic depth. And so you get scared when you have that kind of history and you're looking at your bastion of distance going away. A, a lot of people in progressive circles are very concerned about who Biden seems to be picking to advise him on foreign policy, who might take these posts uh, some people are saying he's planning a wartime cabinet. Uh, I don't know if that's an exaggeration, but uh, are, are you concerned that 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 the kind of people around him are the kind of people that were willing to go, for example, in, 
intervene in Libya. This humanitarian intervention kind of uh, thinking that leads to uh, Libyans' war and involvement in Syria and other places. I am to a degree, but I'm heartened by the fact that Hillary's not there. Um, my students just did a case study presentation on 2011 NATO-US intervention in Libya. They opened my eyes a bit. They did some good research and they presented a good case study. The real convincer, Samantha was pushing, Susan was pushing, but the real convincer that beat Gates and beat Biden out was Hillary, who originally was with Gates and then flew to Tripoli and spent some time there listening to the people in country who became her expertise and then came back absolutely adamant that Gates was wrong, Biden was wrong, and Samantha and Susan were right, and we needed to do it. And remember, she's the one that made the most impolitic diplomatic remark in history. We came, we saw, and he died after that grisly death we all saw on television of Muammar Gaddafi. I mean, what a you are a secretary of state and you make a remark like that. She's as bad as Pompeo in that moment. So I'm a little bit encouraged by the fact that she's not around and Biden is. And I'm encouraged by the fact that Biden has lots of experience in foreign affairs, international relations. I'm not so worried about a truncated transition for that reason, because he's not George W. Bush. George W. Bush was like a two-year-old in the Oval Office in his first week, first year, first term. Biden's smart, and he knows the issues. Powell called him, not Luger, when he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and then when it switched and Luger was chairman, he still called Biden. Dr. Rice got mad at him about, well, why don't you call Dick? He's a Republican. Eh, Biden knows the issues, and he does. And since Iraq, he does seem to have a somewhat uh, more restrained instinct in terms of so. uh, military involvement. Do you see? Do you I think, think so. that there's truth to that? I think, I think there is. He got burned there and he got burned because he was looking back on Sam Nunn and Sam Nunn got burned in the first war. And he looked very logically and said, Hey, it's the same country and the same dictator. And he thought he would get burned if he were against it the second time around the way Nunn got burned in the first war. Nunn's political career was terminated by his opposition to the war. It was so successful. And, you know, and Biden thought that would be his fate if he, I think so. I think so. We forget sometimes that these guys and gals, especially today, they don't have much, they don't have much time to think. You got you got to make your decisions pretty fast. Hmm. You're raising money the rest of the day. So just before we conclude, let's talk about the current political moment. Um, you're on this group about that deals with the crisis transition crisis. Uh, how much of crisis is there? I mean, it looks like maybe not so much that Trump is just wants to be center stage um, and is running out of options. Uh, does he have any options that can actually keep him in power? I don't think so. That don't look to the American people or a substantial majority of them as if he is negating the popular will of the voters. Um, there are plenty of people in his base who believe the lies that he that he uh, really got elected and the Democrats just cheated. But I don't, I think fully 60% of the electorate out there is not gonna believe that. And it's growing every day. You can add a percentage point or two every day almost, just like in Georgia, as I was saying before, uh, his people aren't doing themselves, especially Giuliani. 
aren't doing themselves any favors. They look like idiots and they're even being made to look like idiots from time to time on Fox. So, you know, I think we are eroding some things we're going to regret the erosion of. And most of that erosion is taking place in the character and quality of the politicians who are exposing themselves in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, South Carolina, and so forth as nothing but self-interested, self-licking ice cream cones, if you will. Lindsey Graham stands out as a perfect. Well, I was about to say Lindsey Graham. So it's Lindsey Graham who's who's really quite smart. When you see him chair these committees, he's very smart. So is this guy wanting to run in 24 and figures he has to keep that Trump base? So absolutely. And and the evangelicals are a significant part of that. You lose them and you've lost that core around which everything else coalesces. Uh, whether it's John Hagee or Joel Osteen or Franklin Graham, any of these guys, if you lose that group that's willing to say that Trump is God's picked president, if you lose them, you haven't a chance as a Republican, unless you happen to be in a district where they don't predominate, you know, in a small district for the House election. I'd say you even lose them in a state you could maybe win a house district because they're so gerrymandered and so limited in terms of the demographics. You might could do that. Could you still win the house? They proved that in this election, they increased their members in the house. But if you alienate that group significantly nationally, I don't think you're going to, you don't have a prayer. And Lindsay knows that that's the reason he's such an ass. I got a call from an evangelical pastor and would have been around 2004, maybe after Bush won the election the second time. And uh, maybe actually it must've been later. It must've been 2000 and s- later, 2007, eight. Second he was term. Watching, yeah. yeah, second term. And he was watching some of the stuff, interviews I was doing. And he wrote me uh, saying how much he appreciated my work. And he was, he had a evangelical church in Connecticut. And I asked him, well, what's your congregation think about what's going on? And he said that they actually had a meeting to discuss because they've been very pro-Bush and they felt completely betrayed by the Iraq war and the lies about it. And they had actually had a vote to stay out of politics. And, and so they were just gonna do good works. And then I have a friend who, who's- There's husband. some real Christians in this group. I mean, yeah, there's some real Christians. I think so. And I don't think enough attention has been paid by progressives and, and others, uh, you know, to, to try to talk to people who are well, they, in, the, in that group. They're, they're significantly turned off by multiple sexual orientations beyond a man and a woman. Many of them are significantly turned off by late term abortion, if not all abortion. Um, and these social issues actually dominate their, their voting rather than economic or security or other issues. And they're good Christians and they respect what Christ said about peace and turn the other cheek and all that kind of stuff. But these social issues really give them a problem. And so if someone is on that social issues side that they're on, they're usually going to support them and hold their nose and, you know, cover their eyes when they go in the ballot, cast a ballot. 
And I, I don't fault them so much for that because they have really firm religious beliefs. And a lot of Catholics are that way now, too. A lot of them. Yeah, a lot of them. Uh, but there, there's got to be a way to have that conversation. Um, and I, 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 we were talking off camera earlier, it's something like over 20% of evangelicals do not vote for Trump and didn't vote Republicans and, and did vote for Obama. Um, yeah. And I have a friend. Yeah, quite who, a few you, voted for Obama. Yeah, quite a few. I have a friend who used to go to an evangelical church and he's since quit. He's Because of the politics, he's had enough of it. But, the, uh, but that 20% or more uh, that don't vote and don't think a Trump is a political expression of their religious beliefs, even if right. it's on abortion and other issues, yeah. that 20%, I think, can talk to at least 20% of the yeah. ones that do vote Trump. Uh, because, the, I mean, infant mortality rates should also count. I mean, it can't just be about abortion. And yeah. It's got, there's hey, got to be my, one. My conversation with one in Texas in Dallas was, went this way. I said, okay, are you for capital punishment? Absolutely. How can you be for stopping abortion and be for capital punishment? And his logic was, and his wife's too, well, the person who commits a murder or a capital crime for which capital punishment is a penalty has forfeited his life by the law. The baby has no choice. It forfeits its life because the mother decides to give its life up. They are pretty smart when they start talking to you. You know, you take your position, they take their position, but it's not an undefended position. It's not an illogical position. Yeah, I don't think abortion, I don't think the abortion de debate is a, is a easy black and white conversation. Well, I don't either. But, but I've asked, I, know, I know some Catholics who have really agonized over it. I mean, truly agonized over it. I think Tim Kaine agonizes over it, the Senator from Virginia. But my question was, how do you support the bombing of Iraq, uh, other uh, military incursions with mass civilian casualties, when you gotta know how many pregnant women with unborn yeah. innocent babies are being slaughtered in those bombing campaigns? I, I think you're gonna find that 20% you're talking about is not in favor of that sort of thing. If they're explained, if the if the war is explained to them properly, you know, most of them think freedom, liberty, justice, our security keeps terrorism way over there instead of here, and so forth. They think like the administration, whomever it might be, wants them to think, and it's wrong. And when you disabuse them and you convince them that they're wrong, they can go the other way. I mean, you say but there hadn't been a war in the last 20 years that wasn't for money and profit. Now, you're, you're going for mammon. You're going for money and profit. That's what your government is doing. And they're lying to you about the freedom and democracy and humanitarianism and all those good things that they say the war's for. It's for money. It's for the wealthy. It's for the defense contractors. It's for all those people who really are running this country. They will listen to that. All right, we'll keep this going. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Surely. Take care. And Stay healthy. Yeah, you too. Thanks for joining us on the analysis.news. And don't forget, we got a matching grant donation campaign going on here. 
if you donate, it'll get matched. Uh, so if you give a hundred bucks, we'll be getting another hundred bucks. And if you do a monthly donation, uh, that will be times 12 a year's donations will get matched. Uh, so thanks again for joining us on the analysis.news. Thank you.